0: All right, let's start with prayer again. Lord, thank you so much for your beautiful, stirring, uh, sometimes gut-punching word. It informs us, it teaches us, but it does come often with the powerful conviction of your Spirit, but never just to slap us down and to tell us how bad we are, but always to correct us so that we might put off that which is evil and inappropriate and to put on those patterns of faithfulness and obedience that are truly the imitation of Christ. And to do it over and over and over and over again so that we can be trained in the habits of heart and mind and life um, so that we'll be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I thank you again for the the great privilege of being able to open up Job for all of us this week. Pray that it will resonate uh, in times of prosperity, as well, especially as in times when it is ours to suffer affliction, that we might uh, be able to benefit from the fullness of the revelation that you have now given us in your dear Son, Jesus, by his Spirit. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, we want to look at the next section, 27 through 31. Job summarizes his defense um, <clears throat> this, in this uh, not-quite-hour, right? 44 and a half minutes, Forty two minutes, whatever. Um, All right, so Job's counselors now have kind of exhausted themselves in trying to get Job to acknowledge his situation before God, admit his offense, and uh, shed his hypocrisy, which is what they finally think. He's just hiding something, and to repent, again, with a view to being forgiven. They're not, simply trying to prove that they're right and Job is wrong. If we, if we take the, the overall storyline, they, they desire Job's good. You know, sometimes when we're accused, uh, the, the goal is to shame us and leave it there. Um, I guess this is just another parenthesis. You know, no matter how badly one of your friends has to wound you, to bring you to forgiveness, receive it, and love them for it. Sometimes the smack, the spank is so painful that we just assume that they mean us ill. But just like the doctor, now I'm old, so I'm going to wander a minute. When our son David was small, um, toddler, Sherry was getting dinner ready, it was on the table, she put a hot pot of tea on the edge of the table, and David went up and grabbed it and pulled it off and burned his chest. And in the treatment then, we had to uh, change his dressings a couple of times a day, which involved me laying him down on the draining board and holding him down so that Sherry could soften with water and then peel that bandage off and clean it and put it back again It hurt him terribly, but we were trying our very best to see to his healing. When we get older, and someone needs to bring some sin to our attention, and if you're really mired in it, it's really like peeling off a rotten band-aid, and you might assume that the one who's coming to you is your enemy. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians, you know? Have I become your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? So, I said this yesterday, I'll say it again. It's not the first sin that's the most dangerous. It's the second one that resists the call to repentance. That's the most deadly one. So if someone is instrumental in, in calling you to repentance, receive that. And... Uh, But Job's friends were unsuccessful, and Job would say, because there's nothing there for me to confess. Um, So Job resists the counsel of his friends as they press their case uh, more and more strongly. The positions of Job versus his uh, counselors becomes more extreme and uh, kind of gets blown up even in perhaps some hyperbole. Let me just read a couple of paragraphs from uh, John Hartley. Um, This comes from an essay he wrote about Job, but then later in his career, he wrote the uh, New International Commentary on the Old Testament Commentary on Job. And uh, so here's just, again, a kind of a summary of what we've just covered in uh, in this great debate. He says, in the first cycle, The friends seek to console Job by recounting to him the just and wise ways of God. They juxtapose descriptions of the calamity that befalls the wicked with those of the blessings that attend the righteous. These descriptions function both as a warning of impending doom and as an exhortation for Job to repent. In defense of their instruction, the friends quote hymnic lines on, in praise of God's power and wisdom, they, exhort, they also exhort Job to seek God, promising him prosperity, security, and joy. In the second cycle, the friends, suspecting that Job must have done something seriously wrong to be so afflicted, omit any words of consolation as they deliver harsh accusations against him. Each of them describes the terrible fate that awaits the evildoer as a powerful warning that he must forsake his evil course. Absent from this cycle are any hymnic lines in praise of God or calls to repentance, the friends concentrate on trying to convince Job that he is numbered among the wicked. In the third cycle, Eliphaz directly accuses Job of specific sins, and I mentioned some of those uh, last hour, and adds a threat about his precarious circumstances. He quotes briefly from a hymn and then proceeds to dispute with Job about the fate of the wicked. He concludes with a vivid, energetic call to repentance. Next, Bildad merely quotes from a hymn in praise of God's majesty and describes the downfall of the wicked. So again, we can just kind of see the way the argument ratcheted up to become more intensified uh, at the end. But in the end, Job's... Friends fall silent. And uh, in the book of Job, silence implies capitulation. Well, except for in God's case. God is silent and then he speaks. Everybody else speaks and then are brought to silence. They fail to convict and silence Job. And Zophar doesn't even take his third turn at bat. And no more is heard, then, of these three friends until we come to the very end of the book when Yahweh rebukes them for their foolishness. And again, we wonder how much more could his friends have known given their redemptive historical setting. But in terms of the drama of the book and the teaching of the book, they have failed. Um... And then as we look at this summation, just again, what is Job claiming for himself? Not sinless perfection. I mentioned this earlier, but let me just give you a couple of specific passages where Job acknowledges that he is a sinner by nature and uh, at least in some sense saved by grace. Job 7, verses 20 and 21. If I sin, what do I do to you? You watcher of mankind, why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. So he talks about his sin, his transgression, his need for pardon. And then in uh, chapter 13, verses 23 and following, How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemies? Verse 26, For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. And one more in 31:33 if I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in greater fear of the multitude and the contempt of families, terrified me so that I kept silence and did not go out of doors. So Job is aware of his sin. Whatever he says in his own defense is not to say that he is not a child of Adam, that he does not inherit both the guilt and the corruption of Adam, that he doesn't have his own real transgressions, his immediate transgressions. Uh, But what Job is denying is hypocrisy and pretense before God and men. Remember, that's what Satan accused Job of. He's faking it in his claim to love you and to serve you, and Job denies it. He stresses his integrity. And again, integrity means oneness, a whole life fitting together so that your inner person and your outer person correspond to one another. You know, what you see is what you get. Now, there's always a difference in our outward behavior and maybe what's going on in our head, and that's a good thing sometimes. We think that we're going to say to somebody who makes us angry, we're going to reply But the distance between the inward thought and the outward words gives us enough time, by God's grace, to catch it and stop it before it's delivered. But the goal is to become so transparently committed to holiness that what's in our inner person is there on the surface as well. It's the opposite. You know that hypocrisy means to wear a mask. And so you're deliberately putting on the face of piety, the face of holiness, while inwardly, like the, like the Pharisees, you're like a, a tomb full of stinking corpses. Job is denying that. He claims his integrity. Again, chapter 27, verse 7. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days Job understands that God requires truth in the inner parts and he believes that he is that kind of covenant keeper he sincerely is devoted to the Lord and a life and fellowship with the Lord again he's giving the lie to Satan's accusation he's not following God because he's prosperous because he's got a big family because his estate is vast He loves the Lord God, and he serves him. And these blessings have come upon him, but even taking them away, he's going to remain faithful to the Lord. In chapter 42, God describes Job, again, as a man who is blameless, upright, fears God. We have noted that before. And he says at the end that Job is the one who has spoken truly and wisely about God himself. And yet, for Job, there's a new understanding. I heard with the hearing of the ears, now my eyes have seen you, and I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's also, again, worth just noting that there's no meritorious self-righteousness here. I mean, ever since the Reformation, that's been the the big, big, big boogeyman, often real, but sometimes that idea of self-righteousness, self-justification looms so large that, again, we have trouble with the way the Bible expresses the righteousness of a covenant-keeping person. Um, This is a little bit of a sidebar, but again, been very helpful to me over the years we all know the verse in Genesis fifteen six, and Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness a little later in Genesis 26 4 when God repeats the promise to Isaac and references Abraham listen how he describes Abram Uh, This is 26, 4, and 5. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." Now, that's, that's even an anachronistic kind of formula. You hear that language all the way through the rest of the law, Exodus and Deuteronomy particularly, keep my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. And I have so often, not just from dispensationalists, but from reformed people, heard that language characterized as a kind of works righteousness, That's just a different way of describing Abraham believed the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So when we read particularly Moses and we read all this emphasis upon obedience, it's not obedience instead of faith. It's what Paul calls the obedience of faith. This is the way faith expresses itself in loving, trusting obedience to God's commandments Charge, statutes, and laws. Where was I going with that? Heaven. Um, Don't blame the Old Testament for medieval Romanism. Let the Old Testament speak for itself. About covenant faithfulness God's covenant faithfulness to us and our covenant faithfulness to him otherwise you're gonna slide into antinomianism again and again and again even if you deny it in principle it's it's a kind of a gut thing rather than simply an intellectual formulation of a theological principle all right I'm back to work again now all right so let me summarize, again, my own summary. This I didn't print for you in the, in the uh, uh, brochure, uh, what do we call it, booklet. Um, but it's not as long. But again, so just listen, because Job defends himself for several chapters here. And then we're going to look particularly at what he has to say in a little bit more detail in Job chapter 31. Again, Job knows that the evidence will prove if it goes to trial and he is prosecuted by God himself and all of the exhibits are set out, he knows that it will not support the charge that he is a hypocrite and a terrible, terrible sinner. God will have to, just, uh, have to vindicate him because God is just. And God's judgment must be true. But again, it's all a jumble in Job's mind. So here's the bird's eye view of Job's presentation. 27, 28, 29, 31. Hold on to your seatbelts. Job claims that God has denied him justice. Nevertheless, Job will not renounce his integrity. Therefore, God must be either unjust or partial or unknowable. It seems that Job would rather die than have to face any of those alternatives. The spiritual, the theological, and ethical suffering of Job is the deepest and the worst of all. Is there any hope for the godly? Job declares by faith that judgment will come on the wicked. Chapter 28, like men seek and work hard to find and obtain the mineral treasures of the earth, so the search for wisdom is difficult. Where can it be found? What work will it take to mine it? It cannot be found by men in this creation. It is not even valued by men. Where does wisdom come from? It belongs to God. And thus it comes to man only as a gift from God. Bottom line, behold, the fear of the Lord, this is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. And then 29, 30, 31, Job remembers the sweetness of the days gone by when he enjoyed the favor of God. And I referenced that uh, by way of contrast in our early uh, discussion. He was respected for his holiness and his counsel was valued. But now a terrible calamity, a great reversal has come upon him. Now he is mocked and dishonored by men. Under the hand of God, he now has been brought to the lowest position, suffering in body and soul. Yet in all of this, Job has not changed. He is still committed, just as he was in the days of his prosperity, to the fear of the Lord and a life Of covenant faithfulness and righteousness so again and finally he calls upon God the righteous judge and keeper of the covenant the name Yahweh is put in deliberately to hear him and answer his self-defense and then at the end of chapter 31 we read that the words of Job are ended now what I want to just do is look at a couple of passages, but then uh, have you scan through chapter 31 with me. And here I really am thinking about what would I would consider the, the ethical heart of the book of Job. We've been mostly talking about suffering, the meaning of suffering, the purpose of suffering. That's the overarching theme, but... God wants, us to te- wants to teach us righteousness, teach us how to live. We, we kind of know how the, the, the uh, law teaches right living, and in the prophets we understand that usually it's by denouncing the sins of Israel that God teaches us what we should and shouldn't do, both the theological faith, uh, unfaithfulness idolatry, but also all of the, the breaking of the commandments of so the prophets, you know, they're the prosecutors of God's covenant, and they use the law and apply it to Israel's sin. But in the wisdom literature, the, the ethical wisdom surfaces kind of up from below. And so, as we think about this idea that if we love the Lord, and again, for us, It's centered in the Lord revealed in Jesus Christ, the person and work of the Redeemer, the atonement, the forgiveness of sin, the gift of the indwelling Spirit. So again, we enjoy so much more understanding of the context, but then the question is, how should we then live? What does covenant faithfulness look like? And in chapter 31, by listening to the way Job describes himself, we can challenge ourselves. Um, again, a little sidebar. The ethical, you know, our, our, our uh, catechism, what do the Scriptures principally teach? What is it? Spirit, uh, sorry, Scripture? Louder? Somebody loudly. What we are to believe concerning God and the duty God requires of us. So there's your theology and your ethic. So in the Bible, ethics are conveyed in lots of different ways. We usually think of law, of commandment, but the parables are ethical instruction. Biblical history, to the degree that it is exemplary, what to do and what not to do, that has an ethical flavor. The words of the prophets, as I just mentioned, and the wisdom literature teach us what duty God requires of us. So let's put ourselves in Job's ethical skin, his attitudes and behavior, and let that instruct us. I said in the last hour, you know, if, if we were going to ask God or man to know everything there is to, about us and pass judgment on us, we wouldn't be real eager for that full disclosure. Well, here's this is the positive side of that: rebuke, and then training, uh, uh, correction, and training in righteousness. That sounded clumsy to me. I hope it made sense to you. So, first of all, just look for a moment at Job 29, a few verses beginning in verse 12. And here's Paul. Uh, here's Job. He's not bragging. He would have never brought this up. If he hadn't been accused but if you want him to defend himself these are the kinds of things that he will say without fear of contradiction from men or from God that's the bar that Job sets for us or that God sets for us in a person like Job verse 12 I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless the orphan who had none to help him. When everybody was shoving these poor people off, I was the one who took them in. Measure yourself, your tangible kindness to those around you in need. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. You know, Paul said, If there were believers in his churches that didn't care for their own widows, they had denied the faith and were worse than unbelievers. Job wouldn't do that. He would care for a widow. The widow's heart was caused by Job to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, verse 14, and it clothed me. So there's a consistency about this in his whole life. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Maybe he had robes and turbans. Maybe he had the fancy clothes, but it was really this righteousness, this covenant faithfulness that he had put on, and that was what gave him reputation and respect among men. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was the father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him whom I did not know. He didn't just do it for family and friends. He was willing to help the stranger. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous. He was a protector, a defender of the innocent, and made him drop his prey from his teeth. That's the kind of people we should be. And we should be able to advertise, not for self-promotion, but to show that God is really working in us and that we are the real deal. All right, just one verse from chapter 30 that shows the heart of Job. Verse 25, Did I not weep for him whose days were hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? You know, one of the things that I have been struck by during the COVID pandemic is how hard-hearted many of us are. Now, I understand there's all kinds of questions about policy on any number of issues. But I at least hear an awful lot of Christians who cannot even begin to sympathize with what's going on in another person's skin. And if it's on the other side of a political divide, it's even worse. Did not I weep for those whose days were hard? You know, whatever you think about immigration, there's a lot of people out there whose lives are really, really hard. And they're not all across the border. Some of them are in our own communities. And as long as they keep their distance, We have no tears for them. And the sad thing is that the politicos weep crocodile tears for the sake of power and influence. We need the church to be genuinely compassionate, to weep and then to act. We say, well, the problem's too big, we can't do anything. Despise not the day of small things. Do what you can, where you can, and just see if God doesn't bring real changes. And then he goes on, was not my soul grieved for the needy? This is the kind of man Job is. He's not just the subject of terrible events. Now we get a window on what his soul is like, what kind of a person. And that's ethical instruction. That's the kind of people you should be because you are covenant keepers. You're keepers of the new covenant, though. Not the pre-Mosaic situation that Job lived in. And then let's carry on with chapter 31 and and just note some more things. And I'm not going to develop all of these. I think these words driven by the Spirit are like nails and they should do the job for us. We know the first verse there. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then should I gaze at a virgin? Would Job sit in front of his computer screen scanning for pornography hour after hour, day after day? Is that what what you would expect from a covenant-keeping male or female like Job? See, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look at stuff I shouldn't be looking at and feed my lust. Verse 4, Does not he, God, see my ways and number all my steps? So again, he's inviting God's evaluation, not just the evaluation of other human beings. Verse 5, If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. Again, calling for divine judgment, justice. If, I, if my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. You see, he actually inv- invites the covenant curse if those things are true, and he believes they are not. Verse 9, if my heart has been enticed toward a woman and I have lain in wait for my neighbor, at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another. Let her be sexually used by a stranger and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. If that was true of me, My friends would be correct in calling me a heinous hypocrite. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for that would be a fire that consumes as far as Abaddon and it would burn to the root of all my increase. And notice, these are all if, then. If this is true, let judgment fall on me. But Job's confidence is that it is not true of him and that God will vindicate him. So, to carry on, verse 13. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant, when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God raises up? rises up? When he makes iniquity, when he makes iniquity, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? Again, you think of the history of labor relations in the last couple or 300 years since the Industrial Revolution. If, if there had been more capitalists, let's say, that were jobs who could say, I've never rejected the cause of my manservant or maidservant when they brought a complaint against me. Karl Marx would have gotten zero traction in our world. But of course, people who claimed to be Christian, to know the Lord, could not say that as Job did. Verse 16, If I have withheld anything that the poor desired and have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone that is not sharing even hospitably, with the widow and the fatherless. For from my youth, he says, parenthetically in this translation, verse 18, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with a father. Almost sound like like a kind of a foster parent or an adoptive parent, at least metaphorically. And from my mother's womb I guided the widow. So this is a lifelong pattern for Job. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, that is, I knew I could get away with it, the civil magistrate would back me, the good old boys would protect me from my oppressions. Then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced, because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in splendor, and my heart had been secretly enticed, and my mouth had kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If he worshiped money, He was an idolater if he worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And again, that's so like what the prophets have to say, isn't it? When they accuse Israel of being enslaved to their material prosperity. And again, given Satan's accusation, Job's just in it for the money. This is a telling counter-argument. Prove it, in effect, Job says to Satan, Verse 29, and if I have rejoiced in the ruin of him who hated me, oh boy, what does it mean to love your enemies? If I have rejoiced at the ruin of the one who hates me, or exalted when evil overtook him, Years ago a friend of mine with whom I had some serious theological disagreements, but he was a friend because of some medical issues ended up taking his own life. And I heard at a distance of someone who gloated over his death because they disagreed with him theologically. Can you think of anything worse? Exalted when evil overtook him. I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. Boy, that eliminates an awful lot of Facebook discourse and Twitter If the men of my tent have not said, who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do, I cited this one a few minutes ago, by hiding my iniquity in my heart because I stood in great fear of the multitude. That is, I didn't want my public reputation to be damaged by a full disclosure of my hypocrisy. Oh, that I had one to hear me, verse 35. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder and it would bind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. And then finally, verse 38, if my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together. Even if he sinned against the soil, sinned against God's good creation by his exploitations. I mean, we're commanded to be fruitful, to use the earth, but we're not ever allowed to wantonly destroy it. And Job says, if I've done that, if the furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment... Maybe an allusion to something like a, a thank offering of some sort and made its owners breathe their last or maybe exploiting his neighbors in, in that area. Let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. That's a great passage to meditate upon from time to time if you want to receive the ethical instruction. And it's a package deal. You can't take the comforts of Job without taking the ethical teaching, the exhortation, the challenge of Job as well. And thankfully, we have both. Well, as I said, we read there in verse 40, the words of Job are ended. The stage is now set for the appearance of God Himself. He will send a messenger before his face. I'll argue that it's Elihu, but we'll talk about that God willing tomorrow morning. But for now, let's just lay ourselves before our God. Heavenly Father, Holy Spirit, the searcher of the deep things of God and the searcher of our hearts, We hear the word of the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. And you've done just that in the last few minutes as we have read through and taken note of this passage in Job. Don't let us brush it off quickly and casually. We thank you that we have been called to be Your people. But your people are a holy people. And they walk in righteousness because you are the righteous God and judge. And Job was that kind of covenant keeper, and we want to be the same. But it means, O Lord, that we need to be far more scrupulous about your requirements and our failures, both by commission and so often by omission. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you will wash us clean afresh as we repent of our sins in the blood of Jesus and help us to resolve every day to be people of integrity who can live openly before men and before you, God, and live lives that are pleasing. you. Let our lights so shine before men that they will see our good works and then glorify you, our Father in heaven. Amen.